All right, we've been doing a Daniel study, and we are three chapters in. This is the well-known story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. I would like to, um, instead of me reading this text, I would like to have uh, four people volunteer to read different portions, all right, whatever translation you have. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I would like for you to follow along. I think uh, not just hearing, but reading of the Word uh, has an ability for it to sink deeper as we get the overall context of the story and then jump into um, the discussion of it. So, who would like to read first? Emily, uh, Daniel, uh, 1, 1 through 7, please. Second, Garrett, 8 through 15. Third, Bones, 16 through 23. Caleb, uh, 24 through the end. All right. Uh, chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3. And out loud, because the group is behind most of you. All right. Emily, starts off, please. Yes. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as your heart, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, scissor, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Thank you. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. If you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, 
we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude towards him changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army of his to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisor, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning furnace. He declared, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and the smell of fire had not come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Sandrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people and nation of language and any speaks, anything against, that speaks against anything of, other than the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb for limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thank you. All right. Now, I wanted, to, I wanted us to get the story first, all right? Let's kind of pause for a second and see if we can kind of get into the mind of Nebuchadnezzar here a little bit. Um, as, as a point of example, um, I've said this before, but I love to travel internationally when I have opportunity. And we're going to the Czech Republic, and when I've gone overseas and you arrive, you have jet lag because you've been traveling for 25 or 30 hours, and um, time zones are different, and you just, I just, I have this, this hazy, like I just pulled an all-nighter, a little jittery, I didn't get really good sleep, I've been seated, you know, I haven't been able to lay down for a long time feeling. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bad feeling, it's a very uncomfortable feeling, um, and it's not really the way you want to start a, a trip where you're, you're ministering to people, you know what I mean? Like, because what happens is you tend to get cranky, um, you don't feel good, and you don't feel like engaging people. And so, several years ago, on a missions trip, uh, before the trip, several of us got together and said, hey, listen, let's, let's attack this thing and know 
that this is the way it's going to be in the future. Like we're going to get there and we're going to be cranky. When we get there, we're going to be a little short with each other because I've seen that a hundred times. When we get there, we're not going to feel good. When we get there, we're going to have to fight to keep our eyelids open. So let's know that and um, make a plan on how we can get there and hit the ground running um, so that we can do the best that we can for the, amount, the short amount of time that we have to do this mission strip um, to make the biggest impact that we can. All right, it's, it's a simple strategy of saying, hey, I know something's coming, so how, how do we make a plan? How do we strategize? How do we gather our, our strength together to, to be more effective once, once we hit the ground? And what I have found is when I get in that mindset and when we kind of make that plan, of like, you know what, we're going to just go as hard as we can for this week and then we can sleep later, you know. I'm going to keep my eyes up. Even if people are bothering me, I'm going to keep a smile on my face. And I'm going to look intentionally on how to serve and love people and engage the mission, right? Is just make that plan. Well, Nebuchadnezzar here is in a similar state, except it's not something as, as silly as jet lag. It's his future. It's his legacy, he knows that one day he will come to an end. And so he's thinking, this is coming in the future, and I'm going to die. How can I attack this problem? How can I strategize this problem to make sure that my legacy, my dynasty, will continue forever? And he's a smart guy. We talked about this last week. He's uh, incredibly powerful. He has many um, tools of warfare. And he is the most powerful man in the world. And he comes up with a strategy. And it's actually a pretty good strategy. Um, he asked himself, how do I fight this future? Because remember, last week, if you were here, we looked at Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision that terrified him. And nobody could interpret the dream for him. Um, but back in those times, uh, they saw dreams as foretelling the future, um, and it so unnerved him that he couldn't sleep through the night, and he was willing to execute every person that was supposed to be wise within his whole kingdom in order for him to get the meaning of this dream. And if you know the story, Daniel came, God showed Daniel the vision of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and this was it in summary. King Nebuchadnezzar saw a giant image. And it had a gold head, silver, shoulders, bronze, torso, iron, and then a combination of iron and clay, blah, 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 blah. This whole thing is unpacking. It says there's going to be a stone that is not cut by human hands, and it's going to come, and it's going to destroy this entire image, and it's going to fall, and the dust of its remnants are going to be blown away with the wind. And you, Nebuchadnezzar, is what Daniel said, you are that head of gold. You and your kingdom. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar has just heard in his vision that he is golden, even though it's not going to last. All right, the vision says you're gold now, but it will not last. So what does he do? He says, okay, I have power, I have might, I have strength, I have influence. How do I then get the one thing that I lack? You tracking? Legacy, dynasty. How can I make my head of gold turn into an image of gold? You know how he did it, or his strategy in the text? He made a statue. He said, if I can create something, X, we don't know what it is. If I can create something that will be a unifying factor for all of my domain, 
All right, so I'm gonna create something, a statue. It's not just gonna be a statue with a head of gold, but it's gonna be an entire golden statue. And then I'm gonna put it on a plain, the plain of Dura, it says, so people can gather. The beginning of this text, uh, Daniel 1, uh, 1 through 7, talks about the great lengths that he went to gather his kingdom. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, this is verse 2, sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providence to come to the dedication of the image. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Nazi Germany. Have you seen movies or whatever, and they have the giant parades? Give me the nod if you know what I'm talking about, you know, and there's, I mean, just hordes of people, and they're in these giant, I mean, as far as the eye could see, and Hitler's standing up there doing his thing, and there's uh, all the flags, and everybody's in uniform and marching, and it's this proclamation of a unifying factor is what it was in Nazi Germany, because the Third Reich, if you know history, was supposed to reign for how long, you know? A thousand, years. a thousand years. Hitler was saying, we, as the Aryan people, the German people, are starting something here. That we are unifying. Look at this magic. Look at this. Look at this unity, you know? Not only the physical unity of everybody marching in step, but everybody's wearing the same thing. We're all saluting the same flag, and we're all about us as a, as a notorious nation, that we are bigger wiser, faster, stronger, and even if Hitler dies, we are going to reign for a thousand years. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted. He said, I have all this, but how do I fight this vision? I'm going to introduce a unifying factor, and it is going to be an image of gold that is 90 feet tall. It is on the plains of Dura for everybody to gather, and then it goes to great lengths to say, when you hear the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you will fall down and worship. All right? You know what this makes me think of? <clears throat> Islam. Lauren and I went to Turkey uh, a couple weeks ago, six, time, six times a day. You know, you hear the... And it's this sign that you're supposed to now, when you hear it, drop and worship. All right, so this worship is transferable throughout his entire kingdom, even if you don't have your eyes on the golden image. But it is a unifying factor. Even if Nebuchadnezzar goes, everybody has been gathered. You will do this. There's a strong pro proclamation. You are commanded, O people, nations, and language, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And this will complete everything that he's ever wanted. Does that make sense? He's got, the, he's got the strength, he's got the might, he's got the people, he's got the nations, but he wants to be forever. And this is the way to do it. The golden image, not a golden head, but the whole golden image. And if you don't do this, I'm also going to create a fiery furnace next to it, and you'll be put in there. It's interesting theory, right? I mean, it's interesting strategy. And, and this, this was strategic. Nebuchadnezzar wondered, how can I make this thing that I have created eternal? Add a unifying factor of the golden image. Okay, so you build a golden image that's 90 feet tall. And you, you have the power. You gather all the peoples of the nations in this one plane. 
how do you cold start a worship movement? I mean, there's no reason why anybody would really think about that. But I mean, I mean, typically worship is something you're either grown into or you're trained in, right? Or there's some sort of a deity that is is meaningful to you that you, that you then say, now I will begin worshiping. Like, how do you how do you go from nothing and just cold crank a worship movement? You ever wondered about that? I don't know how you do it. Well, I don't know how you do it meaningfully, <laughs> but you know how he did it. If you don't do it, you're going to die. All right? So then everybody was like, <laughs> you know, they all dropped. He just said, hey, you will worship or you will die. You will worship or you will die. And so the band plays and the plane of Dura drops and everybody starts worshiping. I mean, it's simple, basic survival instinct motivation, you know, which as a little tiny side rabbit trail, a lot of people worship a, a little bit frivolously like that, you know, like if I drop on my face and worship, then I will get more money, you know, or the gods will be happy with me or I'll equal out my balance scale, you know what I mean? Um, if I just do this thing, then I can survive. But it's, it's, it's natural. I mean, we read back on this ancient, though true story, and we think, well, that's kind of egotistical. Yeah, it is. Um, but ultimately, in, in a way, it worked. You know? I mean, the nation fell on their face, and they paid homage because they were scared of, of their life. It's interesting to see that um, when you look at verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits since breadth was 6 cubits. So it's about 90 feet by 9, nine feet wide. And he set it up in the plain of Dura. There's one other reference to the plain of Dura. In Genesis chapter 11, if you want to look there, you can. Um, Genesis chapter 11 Verse 1 says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain, the plain of Dura, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is the Tower of Babel. Same place that where the Tower of Babel was built hundreds of years previous, really with the same objective. King Nebuchadnezzar said, I want to have a unifying factor here so that my name will last forever. And with the Tower of Babel, people said, let us come together and build a tower into the heavens. Let us let come. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower, with its top in the heavens, and let us let us make a name for ourselves. It's the same thing in the same place. Human history has a tendency to repeat itself. So King Nebuchadnezzar said, "I'm going to do this. It's going to be a unifying factor. I'm going to cold cold start a worship movement by demanding that everybody worship it, or they die." And then when they, everybody hears the music from this time forward, it's going to work. And then I'll be remembered. Nebuchadnezzar is a fear monger. You know? 
he, he, he's, he's really doing what it takes. He, he is taking the, the power of life and death and really flocking his nation to, to walk the path that he wants them to walk for his own benefit. That's, that's really what he's doing. And we've seen that with dictators and kings and stuff throughout the course of history. He promised, if you do this, you'll get what you want. If you don't do it, I'm going to take your life from you. Um, I took an ethics class in college. It was a Bible class. So we had the Bible with our, our foundation. But a lot of the discussion in the ethics class found its way to the simple question, how do you determine the greatest good? And often, the answer that was brought up, how do you determine the greatest good, is the greatest good is the preservation of life. I'm not saying that I completely agree with that. But a lot of times, people will say, you just need to do what it takes to live, right? Um, and it, it go, goes back to the question that you go around and around and around, like, can you, do you steal bread if, you're about to star if your family is, is starving, you know? Is it worth uh, killing one person if you're saving 10 people or 100 people? Um, is, is the preservation of life the greatest good? And there's an instinct within all created humans that we long to preserve our own life. And we have reflexes. We have, we have self-defense mechanisms. And when our life is threatened we will often do whatever it takes to preserve our life. And King Nebuchadnezzar knew this simple fact. So therefore, it was very logical, very smart in his context for him to say, you do this or you die. And it was very logical and smart in the context of all of those under the Babylonian rule to obey. I will do what you have said because... I long for my life to be preserved. If anybody is, in, in threat, is threatened with death, there's always going to be some sort of what's worth it here, right? If you have that long to think about it. You know, if somebody says, I will kill you unless fill in the blank, there's some sort of a mental process of what am I going to hold most dear? preservation of my own life or whatever cause it is that I and them submitting my physical life to die for it's a pretty big question it's a question that every 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 mind is going to go to when they're faced with the question of life and death but the survival instinct doesn't doesn't end if the death scenario ends all right if um If our, if our life, if the death scenario isn't an issue, which it's not, ultimately, for, most, for us, like we don't have a gun to our head, um, the instinct continues, and it continues in this way. And track with me. If we're not in danger of dying, okay, the, pre the, the preservation of our, of our physical life, our instinct, natural human nature instinct, is to go towards the preservation of a greater quality of life. That makes sense, all right? So if, if, if we're not in danger of our life being taken, then we have a natural instinct to say that I'm gonna pursue, I'm gonna sacrifice, I'm gonna, I'm gonna chase 
a greater quality of life. That that to me is going to then be a greater good, which is going to determine most of the decisions that I make in my life. And if you step back, and I'm not trying to over-spiritualize things here, okay? So don't, don't read too far into this. But if you think about the day-to-day <clears throat> things that you do, the decisions that you make, the people that you're around, the job that you have, the education you've pursued, the clothes that you're wearing, the way that you handle your money, isn't it ultimately for the end goal of, I think that this will, will better my quality of life, right? Like, I, I want to be around my friends or these type of friends or this type of people because it will make me happier. And that's okay. I mean, that's kind of what friends do. You know, I'll enjoy myself more. If I'm bored or if I'm lonely, I want to add this social thing to my life to give me a better quality to my life. You know, we, we pursue, I mean, money. It's, it's, there's a necessity of money in our life. But we, we work for money so that we can pay our bills, so that we're not stressed by other financial obligations, that maybe we can start putting some stuff in the way to, away into savings to, to build um, a little bit of security, so that the quality of my life is, is better. Even the clothes that I buy, even if it's on the sale rack, like I want to look nice when I put, I wanna, I wanna like the way I feel and I look in the things, in the way that my, I, my body is, the way that I comb my hair, put my clothes on, my, my quality of my life is getting better and better and better. And that we do things at the expense of other things uh, to have a greater quality of life. King Nebuchadnezzar um, knew this and wielded uh, this power to get what he wanted. So if his, if his goal and his objective was an eternal kingdom and that the entire nation would drop on their face and worship this golden image and that his legacy would last forever, what is ultimately, at the end of the day, the one thing that can topple his strategy? Somebody define him and leading a different movement. Like movement. Somebody define him and leading a different movement. Okay. Look for a little bit more. What else? I mean, think in, in, in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar, all right, here's my goal. Build a golden image. Everybody will bow to it. It'll be the unifying factor of my legacy forever. How does that plan break down? I'm sorry? Remove the golden image. Remove the golden image. Okay. Can't work if you don't have something to worship. Brooks? They don't fear their own life, for one thing, and also there's a greater God than him. Okay. If you don't fear the loss of your life, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. Because this whole thing is based on worship or die. And so therefore, everybody dropped and worshipped. The preservation of life is the greatest good according to people here. And if the preservation of your life is not the greatest good, and everybody else drops in worship, and you're left standing, and you're like, whoa, everybody else cares about their life to the, as the most important thing regardless of anything else, it would rightly cause Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. What? You didn't do it. And he warns them, you know? He says, 
furious, in furious rage, verse 13, he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my God or worship the image that I have set up? I'll give you a second chance, verse 15. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then, as, as, as a God who rules over you, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Who is it? Because I'm the one who controls death and life. Who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna save you now? Verse 16, we have the only words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this chapter. They answered to the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury because this torpedoes his whole plan. This only works if people are concerned for their life. And I'm assuming that everybody is. But if there are people who say, you know what? There's something greater to me than the preservation of my physical life. So therefore, that, that greater question mark, you don't know what it is, is going to determine how I live, even if it's in defiance of you, O king. Then suddenly, King Nebuchadnezzar is powerless. Not something he's used to. He is powerless. He has gone to great lengths to gather everybody and he has built this golden image, and he has made this decree, this decree, and he has said, this is my way to an eternal legacy, and it has shattered these three people who say, you could throw us in. Our, our God could save us. Now, I mean, you don't really play a role in this thing, Nebuchadnezzar. But if he doesn't, just know that we're not going to worship you anyway. And he's furious. Verse 19, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind them and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then those men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, and their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's orders was ur were urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they fell bound into the fiery furnace. It seems illogical to think that Nebuchadnezzar would allow something to happen that would result in the killing of his mighty men, which were there for power and security, for the sake of him preserving his legacy. Like the, the very elements of the very thing that made him powerful, his mighty men, he's killing them off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice the pieces of the strength of this very kingdom to solidify my, my, eternal, my eternal kingdom. It doesn't make any sense. But ultimately, the same thing happens. And yeah, this is another little rabbit trail. Ultimately, the same thing happens to us when we try to preserve 
or greaten our quality of life. Because Nebuchadnezzar is sacrificing things that are really ultimately going to undermine him by making him weaker, by trying to make himself stronger. And so often, when, when we pursue as the greatest good the quality of our own life, the height and the quality of our own life, that's how people get into, into debt, right? Like, I want, I want to have a nicer car, and so I'm going to go into more debt to have this car. And then that debt becomes the very thing that steals your quality of life. Like, I have this nice car, but now I'm burdened by this debt. You, you know what I'm saying? Um, like, I, I desperately want, I mean, you've known people like this. I've known people like this. They just, they just want a relationship, you know? And so they'll sacrifice things of just getting into a relationship that just isn't good, isn't good for them, and takes them to bad places. And then it... They want this thing because they think my life will be better if I can just get into a good relationship and they sacrifice things to do it, you know, and it just, and it turns into a mess, right? We've seen that. You've probably been a part of it. I've been a part of it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they responded to the king and they said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We will not serve your gods. King Nebuchadnezzar responds with fury kills off some of his own security to try to prove his point. So, without being overly Sunday schooly, you know, what's the right answer here? Jesus! What is, at the root, what is the motivation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? If the preservation of their own life is not what they're most concerned about, what is that they had on their minds when they were bound and tipped into the fiery furnace, feeling the singe of the heat. Like, what was it that they said, this is worth it? You know? What was it that they said, in spite of all of this, what's, what is better than the preservation of my own physical life? Flip to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 is a promise that is made to the children of Israel. And it says this, Isaiah 43, starting in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He, he, he who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let me read that again. Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego realized two things. That they were, one, that they were part of a promise. 
They were part of a promise from God that said, I will preserve you and your people while on this earth your, the line of David will be preserved. Even though people die, your line will pre- be preserved. The second thing that they knew was that there was a promise from God of eternal life for those that followed him. And that the preservation of eternal life was stronger than the preservation of their physical life. And that there was a greater good than the simple preservation of their life. The thing is, is that God, nowhere in Scripture, when you read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that God nowhere is about, he's not about the preservation of perishable things. You know? So the health and wealth <coughs> theology that is heresy that says, you know, while you're on this earth, if you do things the right way or pray the right way or have enough faith, you will have health and or wealth it is not rooted in Scripture because those things are, are perishable. That God is not, is not about preserving perishable things. So the, the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Benigo, knew that there was a promise that even if they die, that the covenant preservation of their line was going to survive and that, they, that, that the children of Israel were going to make it out of Babylon and that they were going to go back to Zion because they'd been redeemed by their Savior. But they also knew that if they die, that there is an eternal preservation that has to do with the reality of their eternal soul. And that is so much more powerful than this moment that I'm dropping into the furnace. So when you read Isaiah 43, and it says, Though you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. This is not speaking uh, physically, all right? because God did not have to, is not obligated. And 99.9% of the time will not save people when they fall into a fiery furnace as martyrs. That You typically die in that situation. They did not look at this verse as saying, ah, we will survive the fiery furnace. No. They looked at this verse and said, we are preserved as a people because of the covenant of God, and my eternal soul is preserved. And that is what I am promised. And that is enough for me to stand when everybody else bows. And that is something that Nebuchadnezzar could not manipulate. There was a two-year period of time where... Uh, all four of my grandparents. I was in my 30s, and I had all four grandparents. And they were in relatively good health, but they were old enough to when it started slipping, it slipped fast. And so over the course of two years, all four of my grandparents died. And my mom and dad were the primary caretaker of all four. And so it was pretty tough for my folks um, to just walk through that process. All four of them were believers. And so we're, we pray, you know? what you do, you know? Pray for grandma and grandpa. Pray for nana and papa. Grandma and grandpa on one side and a papa on the other. And so we did. And I remember really thinking through, what am I praying for, for nana? She's 86. Um, It's not looking good. Am I praying for nana to be healed? You know, what am I praying for here? It sounds so harsh and heartless to say, you know, I'm not going to pray for my Nana to be healed. She's a believer. It's at the end of her life. Um, Of course I don't want her to suffer. 
But the greatest good here is the greatest good that Nana lived to be 150. You know? And so, do I hold on to a greater, more meaningful, <clears throat> more passionate, moving, that it's not about this life? You know? And if, if Nana passes... We're going to miss her. We're going to be sad. We're going to mourn. But she lived her life for God. And she is, she is someplace where her soul is preserved eternally. So, the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had something else in their life that shifted the human nature of the preservation of life. Their worst case scenario was that they would die and go to heaven. You know? Their worst case scenario in this situation was that they would actually die and be eternally preserved. What we have now in 2014 is we're, we're living on the flip side of a fulfilled promise that was that was made complete when Jesus Christ came. All right, the, those three knew that their line was going to be preserved all the way to a coming king that was going to have an eternal kingdom, and he's going to be of the line of David. All right, and that is Jesus Christ, and he has come and he has begun the establishment of his eternal kingdom that we now, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, can participate as children of God, just like the children of Israel, through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ when he died and rose from the dead on the cross. So we, if you are a believer, have access to the eternal preservation of your soul. And what it should do, but often doesn't, is it should switch our mindset into thinking that the ultimate good or the ultimate priority in this life is not A, the preservation of my physical life, or the pursuit of things that enhance the quality of my life solely. And that is where we trip in America, I'm convinced. Because our lives are not threatened. They're just not. I mean, if you want to say, well, technically, you know, high school shooting happened and someone said, do you believe in God? Those are terrible situations. And I mean, maybe that will happen. But I mean, we are, our lives are not threatened. But you know what we are threatened with? Is the ultimate goal of the higher and the raising quality of our life. And that is dangerous. Paul says in Philippians 1, 21, he says, For me to live is Christ in the furthering of his kingdom, and to die is my gain. He said, you know what? If you execute me, great. What, what greater glory than dying for my faith? And what reward awaits for me if I am, if I am so blessed to be martyred? You know? And his captor said, well, okay, well, then we're going to put you in prison. And he said, Awesome. You know, I mean, if you're going to keep me alive, then what better thing than to, than to uh, be persecuted here? Because it's not about the quality of my life. It's not, about my, my, it's not about my retirement. It's not about my relationships. If you want to put me in, in, in prison because of my faith, then I know that that is going to translate into a greater reward for me later. So you know, here, you know? And so they said, okay, well, then we're going to let you go. And he's like, 
Awesome. Well, then that means I get, to, I get to live out this life for the furthering of the kingdom. And what better way to spend every minute of my day than something that has to do with the preservation of my eternal soul? 2 Corinthians 12 says, My grace is sufficient for you. This is, this is uh, Jesus speaking. God speaking. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly for my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. I am content with a less than awesome quality of life. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Um, when you become a believer what is happening in your heart and in your soul is you are saying I am dying to myself that's the symbolism of baptism that you are, that you are dying to yourself and you are being raised with a new pursuit in life with a new motivation in life, with something else that is making the decisions for my life. And it is not a greater quality of my life that I am dying to myself. I love the song that we sing here um, that says, um, it says, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. You heard that? Hallelujah. All I have. I feel like people kind of fist pump. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. I mean, I, I, I sing those songs and I feel kind of like a yeah moment. But I feel like it is so quickly lost when I leave Sunday morning so often, that I slide back into the everydayness of my life, that I slide back into how can I make this go smoother in my life, how can I enhance this in my life, even though I'm not personally trying to climb some corporate ladder to some level of success, I forget that I have died to Christ. I do, and so do you. We forget. And we just let the, the, the iron fist of the Nebuchadnezzar culture that we're living in that says you're supposed to be about something else and I'm going to demand it of you. You need to pursue a higher quality of life. You should be making more money. You know what? You can't be happy unless you're in a, a more meaningful relationship. And if you're not wearing nicer clothes or unless you're skinnier or unless you have a newer model car or unless you find some sort of of a raise in your job or an advancement somehow, then you're just not going to be happy enough. And that, that needs to be your goal and your priority. And if you're not there, then you're going to bow on your face in the plain of Duran until you get it. And it is going to rule you because that's the most important thing. And even if you are a Christian, we just forget that we've died to Christ sometimes. 
and we just kind of move into the flow of the masses when the music plays, and we bow on our face, and we forget that we've died for something greater, which is the gospel. Here's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave us with. Part of the believer is, the, is called the per- perseverance of the saints, is the continuing on and the continuing off. And we need to be asking ourselves consistently diagnostic questions. Questions such as, am I using my time, talent, and treasure in an eternal promise sort of way? You know? How do I spend my money? How do I make decisions? Is there any part of it that says, this is not my life, and the quality of my life is not the greatest good? You know, am I ever asking myself those things? If I'm not asking myself those things, then I will default to what the masses are doing, the way my heart is naturally spring-loaded to fall, and I have to be brought back to the gospel. Because there's greater satisfaction and greater joy, and I can more meaningfully and truthfully sing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. It is my very life. And everything else just happens to fall in place after that. Let's pray. Father, help us with this. We need you and the working of your Holy Spirit to help us to see that we have the promise of a preserved soul in eternity. Father, help us to hold on and cling to the gospel in the everyday whirlwind of our life that is around a bunch of people who aren't living for what we are living for. And may we be continually brought back and reminded to the fact that we have already died and that we have another purpose, another goal, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you for what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.